0: Well, last week, uh, you had Chris Duck fill in for me uh, while I filled in for Kevin in the college ministry. Um, and while that was a ton of fun, I missed you guys. And I know that Chris did a phenomenal job thinking about the, just the sovereignty of God in your life, um, how we can trust him in all things. And in some ways, we're going to continue that a little bit today. It's one of the big things in, the, in James's letter. But I do just want to say, but as a matter of public record, Thank you to Chris. So if you see him and you haven't said thank you, uh, please do so. It's a huge, huge help that we have brothers who uh, are willing to teach and able to teach, and he is both. So uh, today, though, we're looking at James 5, verses 7 through 12. So just a couple of verses with one big idea in mind, and that is the idea of patience. Patience. So the title of our message this morning is Patience as a Way of Life. What do we know about patience? Now, I think what we probably all know is that we are not patient. Uh, wh- whatever it is, I don't have it naturally. Uh, maybe, maybe you do, uh, but I don't. Um, I want what I want, and I want it now. And if those things don't happen the way that I want them to happen, I will pretty quickly become frustrated and be uh, tempted to lash out or to say or to do things that ought not to be done. Well, I have a a definition on the screen. This is from uh, one Bible scholar. I think how he said it was really, really good. So if you want to just take that picture or try to write that down as I read it or just listen along. Patience is the ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing one's temper, without becoming irritated and angry, or without taking vengeance. It includes the capacity to bear pain or trials without complaint, the ability to forbear under severe provocation, and the self-control which keeps one from acting rashly, even though suffering opposition or adversity. Now, in my own life, and maybe in your life, we might confess, my picture is probably not next to that definition, right? Like, I'm not the model. I'm not the example of someone who is patient. When I get provoked, when I get ridiculed, when I uh, take some kind of punishment from circumstances or people, I do lose my temper, I do become irritated and angry. I do want, at least, to take vengeance into my own hands. I complain when I hurt. I lack self-control. And so on the front end of this, James is going to say, Brothers, be patient. Because we need this command to ring in our ears as followers of Jesus. So what we're going to see though this morning is that this command is not a command for the impossible, that if we are actually brothers in Christ of James, brothers and sisters in the family of God, patience is possible. And not only is patience possible for us, there's a historical precedent. There are brothers and sisters who have gone before us who have modeled this kind of patience. And then we'll also see at the end, it produces a principle in us of how we live and especially how we speak. So let's read our text this morning, starting in verse 7, and we'll dive in. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord God, I'm grateful. I'm humbled because I'm reminded that Lord, you do not need me. Um, My cleverness and intellect and even experience and even passion and desire are not the things that the people of God need. What we need, what I need, what the students and leaders need is you. We need to be refreshed by your spirit. We need to be instructed by your good word. And so, Lord, I pray that you might help me to do just that, to be the means by which you bless and encourage and challenge and edify your people. As we spend time this morning diving into your word, remembering the gospel and being spurred on to faithfulness, would you keep our hearts tender, our minds focused? Would you do what only you can do this morning in our hearts and in our lives as we sit under the authority and the power of your good word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, number one, for our time this morning, patience is possible. Patience is possible. This is good news for us. Uh, it's good news for me as a parent um, because I don't know if you've ever, you've ever heard either uh, the terrible twos or if you somehow get through the second year unscathed, having a three-nager Maybe you've heard those words before. I think, I think we're right in the middle, right? He'll, Abe is going to turn three in October, and we're watching this transition happen of like, you know what I want to do today? The opposite of everything you've said. Like, that's where we're at right now. And in that season of life, it is hard. It's hard. And what it is doing is it's proving to me, I mean, Whitley's a saint, But it's proving to me that the patience that I thought I had, I do not have. That the kind of long-suffering that I thought I could embody and practice is woefully insufficient. In fact, I am desperately dependent on the Lord. And James here is speaking into not the exact same situation, not a bunch of believers running around with toddlers, but he's he's speaking to a group of believers who are suffering under persecution and hardship, and his command to them is to be patient. It's not optional for the believer to meet the sufferings and problems and frustrations of their world any other way. Be patient, therefore, brothers. That is a command, but it is a temporal command, meaning it has an end date. It has a final goal, and what is that? Look at verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, why would this be the case? Because when Jesus returns, when, when our Lord comes back to make all things right, all that would test our patience will come to an end. Right responses to our circumstances will be finally secured as right and good when he comes to renew and restore all things. Patience, in other words, will give way to God's final justice. And that's helpful for, for believers in the midst of persecution and suffering. Because when they receive unjust treatment, when they feel like they've been overlooked or maligned or taken advantage of or not loved well, The desire to get even or to get right might crumble and destroy any patience that they might have. But if they remember, all that God does is right. He will do right. God is the one who will make things right, not me. That's not my responsibility. Then it gives them the encouragement and the empowerment by his spirit to wait. To wait. James gives us a really clear example of this with farming. He says, consider the farmer. In, in those days, in that context, planting would take place in the fall, which would be followed by the early rains. This would be like late fall, kind of a, a small wet season. Then he would have to wait until the spring when the later rains would come. Now, in between those two rains, the farmer is not passive. The farmer is not just waking up, looking at his crops and going, hope that rain comes. No, he's active. He is at work. He is doing all that he can to sustain that crop. But apart from those rains, which were totally out of his control, the crop would fail. When we go through difficulties, when life is just tough, when we're suffering, we're often surrounded by things that are out of our control. And we try to find ways to get control. Or we try to manipulate as much as we can to feel like we have control. But perhaps in the midst of your life right now, whatever you're going through, perhaps the Lord is telling you something. Perhaps he's cultivating that fruit of the Spirit called patience in you. And no doubt the language of early and late rains when the believers who heard this uh, When they heard that language, they would have been reminded, at least many of them, of the language of God's blessing. So I'm going to put Deuteronomy 11 on the screen. Listen to what this says. It says, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And notice the point that I'm making. It's it's not that if if I do exactly what God's word tells me to do, then I won't have any problems. It's not that if I'm faithful to be patient in all of my tribulations, that all my tribulations will go away. It's that the Lord will provide his blessing. He'll provide his blessing. Patience which requires trust in the Lord, leads to his blessing. But our hope cannot be in the late rains. Our hope cannot be in the, the meeting of the need. If patience is all about not having to be patient anymore, then we will find ourselves quickly impatient. No, patience is rooted in, our hope is in the coming of the Lord. So we must establish or strengthen or fortify our hearts because Jesus, our great hope, will come. We can be patient now because we know the end of our need for patience is near. Um, I enjoy, now it's, it's crazy to say that word, I enjoy running. If you'd asked me 18 months ago, I would have said, the only time you'd see me running is if there was somebody trying to kill me or, you know, some kind of funny thing like that. But I enjoy running now. That's not to say that running is always enjoyable, right? So if you, if you run long distances, you have different kinds of runs, different kinds of workouts. You have, you know, speed work where you're trying to work on your pace. You have easy runs where you're trying to work on your heart rate. And then you have the long run, Right? So if you're training for, let's say you're training for a half marathon, that's what I've done. There'll be times where you're going to get ready to go run nine, 10, 11 miles, just straight up. That's a long time. And what, what runs out in your uh, capacity to complete the run at that point in your training, if you're saying, I'm going to go run 11 miles and you're not being absolutely crazy about it, your, your heart rate and your, your cardio is not the problem. And your muscles are usually not the problem. What will keep you from finishing a long run the way that you intend to complete it is your mind. Is your mind. It's you thinking, I've got to quit. I've got to stop. I, got to, I, I can't keep going. I can't keep doing this thing. I'm, I'm running out of air. I need water. I need food. I need, you don't need those things. Your body is trying to convince you that the path of least resistance is the best path. And one of the beauties of getting into something like running is it's proving to yourself and proving to your mind that you actually can go further than you really believed was possible. Your, your body is ready to go, your, your heart's ready to go, your lungs are ready to go. It's just, it's, it's all up here. And that takes time. You're going to fail. Like there have been plenty of times where it's like, well, I wanted to do this, but I ended up doing that, right? But over time, I I begin to really believe and know, okay, I only have two miles to go. I've already ran nine. So I know that the end is coming, so I can persevere, right? And I just keep telling myself, like, you know, you you run a half marathon, it's 12, it's 13.1 miles. It's basically four 5K runs and some change. So you'll run and you get halfway done. And you're like, oh, I just have to run two 5Ks. That's easy. I can do that. Or you, start to, you start to show yourself the truth of what's in front of you. Not this is some impossible thing that I can never overcome. It's, oh, it's just this and this. We start to think clearly about what's in front of us. We start to believe and actually practice what we are really able to do. In the same way that I know that the end is in sight for a long run and it helps me persevere, as Christians, we know that Jesus is near. He's coming soon. Now, by soon, I don't mean he has to come by next week or he's not going to be faithful to his promise, right? James believed that Jesus was near. It's why he says things like, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near, The judge is standing at the door. Well, what does that mean? It means not that his return has to be within this immediate time frame. It means that there is nothing left for him to do except come back. There's no like stipulation in the universe that says, well, Jesus has to do this, 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 and this, and then he can come back, but he hasn't done these two things yet. From our perspective, in our understanding of things, and according to God's revelation, His return is imminent, meaning it could come right now, or five minutes from now, or five weeks from now, or 50 years from now, but it could come at any moment. That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. It's gonna come like a thief in the night. You won't expect it. and Because that's true, because I know that Jesus could return at any moment, I can continue to be patient. I can be patient a little bit longer. I can be patient a little bit longer. However, we get fatigued, don't we? That old sinful flesh still creeps up in us. And so as we practice patience, as we practice waiting, We sometimes are tempted to grumble, to complain. And this is why James says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Sometimes things just add up, don't they? Like it may not be that anything in your life should cause you to blow up. But that last little bitty thing was the 50th thing. And you've just lost your strength. Or or maybe you've been dealing with an interpersonal problem, maybe a problem with another person. and, And those little darts and those little nicks and cuts in and of themselves are not very significant. But when it happens over a year, you realize how much you've bled. We get tired, and it's difficult for us to be honest that maybe there's just some people we don't like, and so it's easy for us to vent or to lash out or to grumble against them. I know in my own life, the opposite is true. The people I am most liable to grumble against are the people that I love the most. As Christians, we do not have to be strong all the time. There's no expectation that you are going to have all your stuff together all the time. You're going to be strong in every situation. And I think that's probably my temperament is that because I'm around the people that I love the most, it's, it's, I feel like I can be the most vulnerable. But there is a difference between being weak and being filled with the flesh. There's a difference between feeling my need and walking in sin. We can choose to be weak around others, and I wish you would, I wish you would. I wish you would find people in your life, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a small group leader or a table group leader, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a a discipler in your life that you can just be really honest about where you are in your life, that you can be open and vulnerable and weak in front of, that you can actually be yourself. You can choose to be weak around others, but we must not choose to be wicked because the judge is near. He's standing at the door, which means he hears what you say. And so in my own life, I mean, like, just to be honest, one of the convictions in my heart as I have read over this text this week is, man, I I sometimes confuse weakness with wickedness. I sometimes confuse making my tiredness known and grumbling and complaining. I'm, I'm never let off the hook to not produce the fruit of the Spirit, which includes patience. I am let off the hook to just be nailing it all the time and act like everything's okay. But that doesn't give me the, resp- the, the right, it doesn't give me the option to grumble, to groan and complain. So hold on. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. And remember, what's happening to you is nothing new. So these last two sections, smaller than the first, kind of ornament what we've talked about so far this morning. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So number two, not only is patience possible, patience has precedent. James says, look, what I'm telling you to do is not new in the story of redemption. It's not new in the story of the people of God. Take the prophets. These these, these men of God that you know, that I know, we know their stories. Think about their lives. So He's encouraging us, he's encouraging the brothers and sisters by reminding them that there are those who have gone before them and have done what he's saying. The prophets were servants of God who spoke the word of the Lord often in very difficult circumstances. In their own times, they were not liked, but they persevered. They remained steadfast in their suffering. And now, if we look at both history and the scriptures, we recognize those characters, right? The the kings of those days who enjoyed prestige and power, well, they're now seen for who they are, right? We don't name our children Ahab or Manasseh. We name them Daniel and Jeremiah. We don't name them Nebuchadnezzar. We name them Isaiah. And the prophets were considered Blessed. Blessed. But if you looked at their lives, you may not think that they're very blessed at all. If your career was filled with ridicule, if your job was to get people to go one way and they consistently went another, I doubt folks would look at your life and think, man, she is blessed. But they were. They were faithful, they remained steadfast. They were led by the Spirit. They were clinging to the promise of the one to come. They knew that repentance would lead to life, and they trusted God to make things right. Now, James gives the specific example of Job. Now, if you are not familiar with the story of Job, Job is a righteous man, faithful to the Lord, believing in the promise. And and there's this mysterious, interesting conversation in heaven or in a heavenly place where God and Satan are talking and the Lord is like, have you considered my servant Job? This is Aaron's paraphrase. He's legit. He worships me. He loves me. He's faithful to me. And Satan goes, you know, he only does those things because you give him stuff. He only does those things because you've blessed him materially. You've given him a great family. You've given him money. You've given him crops. You've given him land. You've given him animals. You take that stuff away, he'll curse your name. Again, paraphrase, the Lord is like, bet. He says, okay, you can can take those things away, just don't harm him. Which that's a whole nother sermon about is who's in control of all these things. The Lord is, because the devil's on a leash. Uh, But he does those things. He takes away all of his material goods. His wife looks at him and goes, I don't know why you're so believing in this God person. You should just curse him and die. Your life is awful. And Job says, Woman, you were talking like a madman. You're talking like a fool. If we receive good from the Lord, should we not also receive trouble? But he he recognizes that, that the Lord is in control of his life and all the things that come his way are by his good providence, his faithful hand, and he is worthy to be trusted. Naked I came into this world. Naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. James says that the purpose of the Lord is seen in the story of Job. When we look at his story, we see God allowing great hardship to fall on this man. And yet, James says, what we see of God in that story is that he is merciful and compassionate. So look again at your hardships. Look again at the frustrations in your life. If they are exposing your dependence on the Lord and lead you to cling with all your might to Jesus, then those things that you are enduring are gifts. If they get you to see the truth that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, that he is the just judge who will make things right, not you, then that is his mercy at work. If the things that demand patience from you produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and conform your heart to the heart of Jesus, then God's providence in your life is full of compassion. He wants and knows what's best. His wisdom in your circumstances, in your life, in your hardships, it's worthy of your trust. The question is, will we see it? Will we see our life in that way? Do we surround ourselves with folks who can remind us of that truth when it's hard to see? I'm telling you from personal experience, those people are worth their weight in gold who love you enough to look at you in the eye and say, the way that you're viewing these things is wrong. The way that you're acting in this way because of this thing is wrong. I understand it because I'm a sinner too. But you can't live that way. That's not godly. That's not filled with the Spirit. That's some other thing. And if we see rightly and live accordingly, we will be marked by a certain kind of speech. If we live our lives this way, if we live a life of patience, if we look at our lives and see that our circumstances, if we're faithful like the prophets before us, will lead to blessing, it will produce a kind of word on our lips. James has hammered the idea of speech in his letter, and this passage is no exception. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. So third and finally, patience produces principle. Patience produces principle. That's a lot of Ps this morning. Patience produces principle. Do not swear, James says. He is not talking about curse words, right? He's not talking about vulgar language. He's talking about making oaths. It means leveraging another object or a person as a a verifier of your trustworthiness. Some oaths or swears are clearly invalid and should be avoided, right? So if I vow to sin, if I I swear I'm going to murder him, you shouldn't do that. That's, that's pretty clearly invalid and wicked. You should not say that. You should not do that. You also should not make vows you don't intend to keep. Right? So if you're standing on your wedding day and you're like, for rich or for poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. You shouldn't make that vow. If it's a vow you don't intend to keep, when things get tough, don't make it. Or vows sworn in another name than the Lord. If you put your trustworthiness on the back of another thing, here, here's, here's something that was said a lot when I was growing up. I swear on my mama or on my mother's grave as though like my honesty is dependent on how much I love my mom. That's an invalid oath. This is is the kind of thing that James is talking about. We don't make those kinds of swears or oaths or vows. Why? Because you and I as patient followers of Jesus should not have two levels of speech. We shouldn't have, well, there are certain things for which I really want you to trust me and believe that I'm honest, which means there are other things where it's like, "Mm, it's okay if I don't really am honest, if I'm not honest all the time. I don't actually fulfill my word, if I don't actually keep my word. I can say that I'm going to do this, but I'm actually going to do that. Or I'm going to say I'm going to do it this much, but I'm actually just going to kind of do it this much. Or I'm going to say I'm going to do this thing for you at this time, at this place. And then be like, mm, eh, if I do it another time, it's alright. Now obviously some of those things are culturally bound. We are uh, addicted to timeliness. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about keeping your word. Because... Some oaths are clearly valid. I'm gonna put two on the screen. Look at Romans 1:19 or 1.9. For God is my witness, Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. He's saying, Before the Lord. Like, I'm I'm putting the Lord's name on this. I do this. Or Galatians 1:20, in what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. So there are certain stipulations. What James is saying here is not that you should never make an oath of any kind in any way. That's not his point. What he's saying is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak a word that you keep. Your word should be trustworthy. There should not be a need for an oath or swearing in your life. If you say you will do something, do it. If you say you won't, don't. And James continues this with a warning. Why? Why do we say these things? Why should our yes be yes and our no be no? So that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, I wonder, because James is talking to the brothers and sisters, right? He's talking to believers, So condemnation in this context can't mean separation from God. It can't mean you don't go to heaven because he's talking to Christians. And we know that those whom God has chosen to love, he will love faithfully forever. Once you are in his hands, nothing can get you out of his hands. So what does he mean by condemnation? I I wonder if some of us feel distant from the Lord. Or perhaps we're experiencing an acute season of discipline because of the way that we dishonor this command. Like some of us are wondering why my life is so hard and why God seems so far and why things just don't seem to add up. Perhaps it's because you don't keep your word. Perhaps the way that you speak invites a kind of condemnation. The reality is, All of us fail. We all speak half-truths. We all leave information out, don't we? And we are impatient. That's plain. We let life get under our skin. But in all this, we remember two very important things. First, (laughs) Jesus was perfect in patience. And his words were always faithful and true. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. If there is anyone who could rightly complain about being mistreated, about being misunderstood, about being oppressed, about suffering, it was the one who kept his mouth shut. That's instructive for us. Because our eternal hope rests in his faithful work, not in your ability to keep it together today or for my ability to keep it together when my son pops off at 2 a.m. Thank the Lord that our hope, that my hope is not bound up in that because we would all be hopeless. So we have to remember as we come to a close, Jesus was perfect in patience and his words were faithful and true. But second, we remember that his spirit now dwells in us. His spirit, the spirit of God now dwells in us and is able to produce his fruit in our lives, including patience. And not only that, he is the one who gives us words to speak in our time of need. So when I just feel the weight of the world, when I long to be rid of the problem in front of me, here's the reality and here's the hope. The reality is, in that moment, I can say, Lord, give me patience. Help the Spirit to produce His fruit in my life and give me the words to speak because what I want to say right now is not according to your word. Help me to speak only what is according to your word, what is good and faithful and true, what builds up, what encourages, what's true and noble and honorable and pure. But even in that asking, in that reality, what you're revealing is, Lord, I am not patient. Lord, I do not have the words to speak. But the promise of sanctification and the ultimate hope of glorification is that we can be patient until the coming of the Lord. And over time, that spirit produces that fruit in us so that when hardships come, you know what our response is? It's not to immediately run to Jesus in prayer because we're so aware of this need and our lack of abiding in him has produced an insufficiency in our capacities to do what we need. No, our response is just to be patient. As we are molded into the image of Jesus, we'll start to act like him. And that's the hope of you growing as a believer, that you'll start to take on his traits. That when hardships come, you don't grumble in your heart, bring it before the Lord, repent, ask for grace, ask for patience. You're just patient. I don't know about you, I long for that. I long to be able to just respond rightly. But I know that any response that is right in me is only the explanation and the expression of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that I have died and now Christ lives in me. I want Christ to live in me. I want you to want Christ to live in you.